You're listening to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast dedicated to climate issues in the region stretching from Eastern Europe to Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Boris Schneider, a climate and energy expert from Berlin. As usual, we will have a round of the latest climate headlines from our region at the end of the show, this time from Angelina. One and a half months have passed since the Russian military invaded Ukraine from the south, the east and Belarus. This is the second episode in our special series on the environmental impacts of the war. On this episode, we'll discuss the nuclear risks and hazards surrounding the war in Ukraine. But first, some background on the state of the environment in the country. In an online press briefing organized by the Climate Action Network in Kiev on March 29, several Ukrainian NGOs gave an assessment of the environmental crimes of the Russian army. Among the reported incidents, the NGOs listed the shelling and bombing of industrial and energy facilities, the burning of forests, the explosion of oil depots, and the pollution of the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov by shipwrecks. Other notable areas of concern include nuclear power plants, hazardous waste storage facilities and industrial plants, including chemical and metal processing facilities, which are now located in the zone of active military operations. To discuss the detailed implications of the war, particularly in terms of the risks around nuclear power plants, I am joined by Andrei Martinyuk, Executive Director of the NGO Eco Club in Rivne, Western Ukraine. He is an environmental engineer by background, has been working at EcoClub since 2003 and is familiar with the country's nuclear situation. I began by asking Andrei about the current conditions he and his colleagues at the NGO are working under. I'm leading an uh, environmental NGO which is uh, based in the city of Rivne, it's western part of Ukraine. And basically uh, we are aimed at very much on climate and energy policies uh, like cutting edge at solutions, especially on the municipal level, but also sometimes on national level, but definitely uh, not the whole, uh, uh, the last week, but last month, we are very much oriented to the humanitarian aids uh, to our partnering uh, municipalities on eastern and southern part of, parts of Ukraine. So basically we are trying to fundraise some money and to provide uh, food, uh, medicine and stuff like that to our partners uh, across Ukraine, mainly in Mykolaiv, Mykolaivsk Oblast, um, Poltava Oblast uh, and sometimes Kherson Oblast and so on. How has the Ukrainian environmental community been able to work in the current conditions, just in general? Well, as you may uh, assume, unfortunately, the environmental issues uh, are far from the top priorities at the moment. But still, the Ministry of Nature Protection and uh, Green uh, Non-Governmental non Organization are following what is going on with the situation of the environment, in particular with the burning oil depots and uh, contamination of radioactive dust out of Chernobyl zone and trying to think how to proceed with the current conditions and especially 
looking at a new governmental decree about environmental impact assessment on the board time and so on. But definitely it's not it's clear that we can't proceed with the regular work. Of course, we understand that. Let us get to the topic of nuclear power in, in Ukraine. Um, so maybe as an overview, before we get on to discussing the details of the nuclear risk in the country, I think it would be good to get an overview over the energy's uh, place in the country. So, for example, mm -hmm. could you please tell us how many nuclear power plants does Ukraine have and how powerful are they? And maybe in general, what is their role in the country's energy mix? Okay. So we have five uh, nuclear power plants. One of them is Chernobyl uh, nuclear power plant, uh, which is uh, decommissioned and four are on operation. And uh, we, uh, among uh, those four, uh, there are uh, 15 nuclear units, in, uh, six of them in Zaporizhia. Uh, nuclear power plant currently is occupied by uh, Russian army. And during the recent years, these four uh, nuclear power plants uh, were providing a bit more than half of electricity uh, consumed in the country. So because of war, definitely the consumption of electricity uh, fell down. But I don't know. So I don't know the recent uh, statistic because it's basically secret. I assume it may be for now it might be a bit more than half uh, of energy, of electricity consumed but still there are few nuclear units are not on the operation because of uh, lack of consumption and if i uh, understand correctly zaporizhia is the the largest nuclear power plant in europe so just to understand yeah, for listeners right. it's 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 not a small one it's very it's a huge one and it's even among the top 10 or 9 in the world if i'm not mistaken That's right. So there are six nuclear units. Each of them has thousand megawatt electricity, electric capacity. And what not really well known fact that there is a storage, dry storage for nuclear spent nuclear fuel on the same site of the Parisian nuclear power plant. In basically the Even we say spent nuclear fuel, it is a thousand times more radioactive than fresh one. So basically spent nuclear fuel is a raw material for nuclear uh, weapon. So uh, just why I started to talk about uh, this uh, dry uh, spent nuclear fuel storage, because it basically could be used as a, a so-called dirty nuclear bomb. Right, you can bl blow it up and contaminate yeah. the whole territory. Wow, this sounds extremely dangerous, and maybe this yeah. is uh, the perfect way to go into our next question. Because um, I would like to speak to you about uh, the nuclear risks in the face of this war. So you already said that the country has uh, five nuclear power plants. One of them is decommissioned. And could you explain again how many of those have been occupied by the Russian army? Because if I understand the number of occupied plants, it was not constant. Zaporizhia and uh, Chernobyl nuclear power plants were occupied uh, in the very beginning of the war. 
and they are uh, occupied for now. And it was an attempt to occupy a South Ukrainian nuclear power plant, but uh, the Russian army was stopped by a Ukrainian one. And they, uh, next to the city of Voznesensk, it's like something like 20 or 30 kilometers from nuclear South Ukrainian nuclear power plants. So for now, uh, the only Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is occupied. And could you remind us which uh, kind of incidents have taken place during those occupations? Like I remember that in the first half of March, in early March, there were international reports about critically low cooling water levels in Chernobyl. Um, what was that all about? So a part of uh, dry uh, spent nuclear fuel storage, uh, there are other type of spent nuclear fuel storage, uh, which wet one or water one. So basically when you pull up spent nuclear fuel from the reactor, it's very much, it is very radioactive. And you have to cool it down by pull, putting into the water pond, basically. Right. And uh, circulate water to cool it down uh, for a few years to uh, significantly decrease the uh, radioactive level to proceed further after it. So basically... Uh, you must keep the water running on this uh, pool, uh, cooling pool of this uh, spent nuclear fuel, because otherwise uh, the water can evaporate and the spent nuclear fuel will be um, heating up. And mm -hmm. finally, it could be melted down. Uh, and there are a few uh, scenarios what will be happened after that. First one, that the hydrogen can, can be produced there and mm -hmm. uh, the, the situation can be similar to Fukushima where uh, we had uh, hydrogen blowing up and another scenario is not excluded as well as it's written on the report of safety measure of this uh, wet storage when a lot of this fuel roads uh, will be melted down um, to the bottom of the uh, pool, it could uh, form a so-called critic mass. So it means that nuclear uh, bomb could be uh, mm -hmm. uh, there on this wet storage while it's not already wet. And uh, just for our listeners to understand, um, this can happen both in running reactors, but also in Chernobyl, for example, in decommission. So you need this cooling water everywhere. Yeah. yeah, the same situation could be in any other nuclear power plant because everywhere there is a, this uh, mm -hmm. this water pool. It's, yes, it's the same functioning. Yeah, and the same story. And in the Parisian nuclear power plants, there was another story. A Russian stupid uh, <laughs> officer somehow ordered to blow up so-called out of dated weapons. I don't know what was the reason to do it just on the side of the nuclear power plants or maybe it was kind of crazy idea. What they trying to do, it's unclear. Yes. And uh, so just to be clear, uh, there is no any uh, nuclear units uh, across the world which was designed to uh, be prepared for uh, military activity. So the yeah. the worst scenario, which what was designed, it's the falling down of small uh, plane. 
uh, with empty tanks. Uh, there is no other war, even worse accident uh, took into account during design uh, of the nuclear reactor. So definitely if you land some uh, missile, we've got like more than thousand of uh, Russian missiles to the Ukrainian territory. Everything might happen definitely. Yeah, so we we see how um, incredibly reckless this behavior of the Russian army is. And maybe in that context, I would also like to ask you, there were reports that um, during the occupation of the Chernobyl power plant, Russian soldiers even um, digged trenches in the forest in this exclusion zone, and that apparently they received significant doses of radiation and then even showed the first signs of illness. Do you know if the UN's nuclear watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Agency, was able to verify this claim? Has this contamination been confirmed? Well, I doubt it's true, to be honest, because the only... One origin of this information is some unofficial telegram channel of Belarusian opposition. So I recently read a few interviews from a worker of nuclear, Ukrainian worker, I mean, of Chernobyl nuclear power plant. None of them mentioned this uh, fact. So, but definitely they might don't, just don't yeah. know. But yeah, the, there is the only one source of information. It's hard to make sure it's true or not. Let's maybe get to the role of the International Atomic Energy Agency again. So um, I read that two days ago, on the 1st of April, the head of this agency, um, Rafael Mariano Grossi, he went to Kaliningrad and he met Russian officials, hoping that there could be a way to de-escalate this uh, situation around the nuclear power plants. Do you know what was achieved during those talks, if anything was achieved? Well, I don't know what was achieved. Basically, after that, uh, Russians left the site of Chernobyl nuclear power plant, but it's hard to say what was the reason. Uh, and uh, But Russians still uh, uh, on the territory and control basically the Parisian nuclear power plant. And uh, for me, International Energy Atomic Agency presents its weaknesses because they basically could not uh, do at least something. Because, like uh, the, the, uh, in Kharkiv, there is a, a scientific, it's not reactor back basically, but still it has quite a lot of radioactive material inside and it was uh, heavily destroyed by Russian attack. And uh, like it's quite, like clear sign that First of all, dangerous of nuclear um, energy and also weaknesses of uh, international regulation in this sphere. Right. Let's look quickly at the future of nuclear energy in Ukraine. So since Chernobyl, since the, the disaster in Chernobyl in 1986, nuclear power has been, I would say, at best questionably popular in the country. And do you think that the energy source has any future in the long run, particularly now if we look beyond this horrible war, particularly if the goal is to decarbonize and um, for the country to pursue its uh, 2060 net zero goal? Well, so we are on this uh, point where different scenarios could run on very different directions. And 
on the recent years, uh, nuclear energy in Ukraine uh, was quite successful with, let's not say propaganda, but something like that. PR, let's call it PR. PR, yeah, uh, saying that this is low carbon energy source and it provides more than half of uh, electricity consumed in Ukraine and we were buying more and more uh, American uh, nuclear fuel instead of Russian ones and we still have uranium under Ukrainian uh, soils and so on and uh, in the same time what like the biggest thing here we missed in Ukraine we never had honest discussion about the cost of nuclear uh, what we've seen and what uh, largest amount of population seen that the price which is regulated by the government based on operation cost of nuclear units and that's it but it, there is this is the only smaller part of the cost of life chain of nuclear and uh, this uh, honest discussion uh, was completely missed in the country and because of it it's really hard to predict what will be happening i do believe that nuclear will further push to to keep the same uh, percent in the uh, energy mix to be honest I think what you said towards the end is a very important point because every time the question of nuclear energy is raised in, as far as I know, pretty much every country, there is this very large um, discrepancy in what the supposed costs are because sometimes, you know, people try to, as you said, take into account only the operational cost, but then you have, of course, basically the whole safety question, the construction of the power plants and those things you as far as i know cannot even price on the private market because the state always needs to to take the risk and how uh, how to monetize that is very um is very let's say arguable is very difficult to say just give you one tiny example uh, there is a site in ukraine in molas in the south part of ukraine where uh, the uranium mining was stopped in 1983 and it the Soviet uh, authority used the method called leaching when you pump down the acids and then you pump up some kind of pulp. And in that uh, place, there is still no any drinking water at all in this uh, like whole uh, region. Uh, and this is like, it's hard to measure how much money and how much uh, people health we missed because of it, because of totally contaminated underground water. So the external costs are uh, much bigger than, than many people would think. Yeah. Maybe to come to an end, the last question, which is, let's say, a broader one. What energy future would you and would your organization at Eco Club like to see for Ukraine? Well, definitely we'd like to uh, go towards 100% renewables. And it's uh, doable in Ukraine. Just let you understand. And with just with simply 
energy efficient measure in residential sector we can uh, decrease gas consumption for about 50% like to halve it wow. just with yeah just with simple energy efficient measures like wall insulation and roof insulation and uh, it's never complete in ukraine and this is the thing we have to start with just after uh, our winning Thanks very much to Andriy Martinuk, Executive Director of the NGO Eco Club in Rivne, Western Ukraine, for joining us on the podcast. Now let's take a look at the latest news from our region. Euractiv have reported that Yannick Jadot, the grand candidate in the French presidential elections, has criticized the oil giant for maintaining its business as usual on Russian soil, despite the war in Ukraine, and calls for French companies to withdraw from the country. He accused Total Energies of being complicit in war crimes in Ukraine before saying that the company completely discredits France in its diplomatic attempt to stop the war, making it a state matter. Shortly before, Total Energies had pledged to stop buying Russian oil or petroleum products by the end of 2022, at the latest, a decision Jadot deems insufficient. Canadian mining firm Sintera Gold confirmed reports that the Kyrgyz Cabinet of Ministers had approved a decision to conclude an out-of-court settlement of their dispute. The article in The Diplomat from the 28th of March states that Sintera has been involved in Kyrgyzstan's most lucrative gold mine, Kumtor, since 2004, though the first agreements regarding the mine were reached in 1992. Sintera press release laid out five points. Among them, the return of state-owned mining company, Kyrgyzstan's share in Sentera, which Sentera would then cancel. Kyrgyzstan is presently Sentera's largest single shareholder with a 26% stake in the company. On March 27th, The Guardian reported that one of Belarus's oldest and largest wildlife NGOs has been forced to shut down after accusations of extremist activities. Former employees of BirdLife Belarus were arrested. One was jailed for six months under suspicion of attempting to destabilize the political situation in the country. The NGO, whose work focused on the protection of birds in the Belarusian part of Polesia, an 80 million hectare wetland area known as the Amazon of Europe, were forced to cease their activist work after 24 years. The Ukrainian Independent Information Agency of News have announced that Poland plans to stop using Russian oil by the end of 2022 as part of a plan to derusify its economy. Climate Minister Anna Moskva said the country could buy coal from South Africa and Australia, and it would not be more expensive. According to a Financial Times article from April the 3rd, Poland's neighbor Lithuania stopped importing Russian gas from April the 1st while Latvia and Estonia ended Russian gas imports around the same time too. On March 29th, Balkan Green Energy News reported that presidential candidate Biljana Stojkovic from the Moramo Coalition and the Assembly of Free Serbia, Bojana Novakovic from the Mars Sadrine Environmentalist Network, and Mariana Petkovic from the Association of Environmental Organizations of Serbia, have accused Australian mining giant Rio Tinto of bringing a boring machine for mining lithium in the Yadar area. Stojkovic said, We are witnessing that citizens are being tricked. 
all the citizens who protested in the streets, who blocked roads, exactly because of environmental pollution. Mining around Serbia, which is completely out of control. After extensive months-long protests against the mine, Serbian Prime Minister Anna Brnabic had announced the cancellation of Rio Tinto's lithium plants in January. The Eurasian Climate Brief has extensively covered the topic in our December 15th episode. That's it for another episode of the Eurasian Climate Brief. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and share the episode on social media. We'd also like to thank our supporters at The Battleground magazine and at NOST. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. Get in touch on Twitter, where you'll find us at Eurasian Climate. We'll be back soon with a new episode. So, see you then. Bye.